You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. On March 22, 1952, 25-year-old Lieutenant Junior Grade Howard Thayer was flying as part of a bombing mission to destroy enemy rail and truck lines near the strategically important harbor of Wonsan, North Korea. Then, suddenly he heard a scream come over his radio, I'm blind! For God's sake, help me! I'm blind! Thayer immediately looked around for a plane that was trailing smoke, but saw none. Above him, he spotted a Douglas AD Skyraider that appeared to be headed nearly straight upward toward the clouds. It was a dark, overcast day, and Thayer knew that if this plane was being piloted by the man who made that plea, he would surely lose sight of the aircraft once it entered the clouds. Thayer needed to act quickly. Plane in trouble, rock your wings! Plane in trouble, rock your wings! Initially there was no response, but then he observed a repeated back-and-forth rocking motion. Yet, the plane continued its upward climb and was just seconds from disappearing into the cloud canopy. Put your nose down. Put your nose down. Thayer continued, Push over. I'm coming up. The Sky Raider was still climbing as Thayer pushed full throttle to catch up with the plane. As he approached the aircraft, he realized that this out-of-control bomber was not being flown by just any anonymous pilot. Instead, he was 22-year-old Ensign Kenneth A. Schechter. He just happened to be Howie Thayer's roommate on the USS Valley Forge, the aircraft carrier from which both had launched. The two had trained together at the Alameda Naval Air Force Base and had since become the closest of friends. This is Thayer! This is Thayer! Put your nose down quick! Get it over! As Thayer pulled in close to the plane, he could see that Schechter was gravely wounded. An enemy anti-aircraft shell had exploded near his head, and it just shattered the cockpit canopy. Ken was barely conscious and was struggling to talk over his radio as the air whipped past him and the loud engine roar just drowned out all other sound. It's kind of like driving a car at 200 miles per hour or 322 kilometers per hour, you know, with the top down but in far, far worse condition. 
Yet somehow Ken was finally starting to make sense of what his friend Thayer was telling him to do. You're doing all right now. Pull back a little. We can level off now. As Howie Thayer pulled within 100 feet, which is about 30 meters of Schechter, he could now see how badly injured his face was. Fragments from the blast had caught under Ken's eye and ripped the skin all the way across to his right cheek. He was now bleeding profusely and had lost total vision. Ken Schechter was flying blind. Thayer thought to himself, My God, my God, how is he alive? Schechter was dazed and struggling to figure out what had happened. So he decided if he could get some more fresh air, maybe he could think more clearly. So he reached for the canopy release lever and pulled on it. Nothing happened. He tried again and still nothing. That's when he finally realized that the canopy had been totally blown away. So his next move was to reach for his canteen. Somehow he got the top off and then he poured it over his face. And this cleared the blood away from his eyes just long enough so that he could see the instrument panel in front of him. And then, in an instant, his vision was gone. Schechter blurted over his radio, Get me down, Howie! Get me down, Howie! Thayer replied, Roger. He then spotted a partial bomb load under Schechter's wings. Drop your ordnance! Howie understood the request and he released the bombs. Their next move was to circle back and head over the bomb line into safe territory. Their initial destination was an island known as Yodu, and it was located in the Wansin Harbor and was often used as a station during helicopter rescue missions. But Thayer quickly realized that Schechter was so severely injured that there was simply no way they would make the distance to Yodu. So Thayer constantly scanned the shoreline for American ships. You know, he knew that once he sighted them, he could be certain they were back in friendly territory. He radioed, We're approaching Wansin now. Get ready to bail out. Schechter refused to do so. He knew that, you know, even under the best of conditions, jumping into that choppy water was a risky move. In fact, during his second mission in Korea, he had flown near pilot Lieutenant Commander Tom Pugh, whose plane had been hit. Pugh landed on the water and signaled to Schechter that everything was okay, so Schechter flew off. But two hours later, Pugh was dead. Pugh's life jacket had failed, his immersion suit had leaked, he never made it to his life raft, and the helicopter sent to pick him up failed. Ken Schechter was in far worse shape, and he knew he had no chance of surviving in that icy water below. He radioed back to Thayer, Negative, negative, not going to bail out. Get me down. So the decision was made to head for an American airbase named Geronimo. It was about 30 miles or 48 kilometers south of the enemy line. We're at the battle line now, Ken. We'll head you for Geronimo. Hold on, boy. Thayer then questioned, Can you make it, Ken? To which he replied, 
Get me down, you miserable ape, or you'll have to inventory my gear. He's referring to the fact that each had designated the other to handle their affairs should one of them be killed in action. As Thayer directed Ken to turn his plane right, he could see Schechter's head fall forward, and then as he attempted to straighten it upward, his head flopped to the left. It was clear that there's simply no way he's going to make it to Geronimo. So Thayer began to search for a place for Schechter to put his plane down, whether that be a rice paddy, a beach, or a flat field. He spotted a clear spot ahead, and as Thayer got closer, he realized that it was an abandoned airstrip that had been nicknamed the Jersey Bounce. While there were no aircraft there, Thayer observed that a few small buildings still did remain. He hoped, he really hoped, that this also meant that a few men remained behind to care for the facility and that they would be able to get Schechter immediately to a military hospital. That is, should he survive the landing. With a short runway less than 2,000 feet or 610 meters in length, and with Schechter severely injured, the odds were clearly stacked against him. We're approaching Jersey Bounce, Ken. We'll make a 270 turn and set you down. Schechter replied, Roger, let's go. As they approached the runway, Thayer began to calmly provide his friend with exacting instructions. Left wing down slowly, nose over easy, little more. He continued, gear down. Schechter abruptly replied, to hell with that. That's because he remembered that in an emergency landing such as this, it was far safer to land on the plane's belly. To use a landing gear could risk ripping off one of the wings, or even worse, flipping the plane over. Thayer understood. Roger, gear up. He continued. We're headed straight. 100 yards to runway. You're 50 feet off the ground. Pull back a little. Easy. Easy. That's good. You're level. You're okay. You're 30 feet off the ground. You're okay. 20 feet. Kill it a little. You're setting down. Okay. 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 Cut. As Schechter tensed up while awaiting contact with the ground, the plane landed on its belly and slid along the gravel runway. About 45 minutes after being hit, his plane came to a stop about halfway down the runway. Thayer radioed, you're on the ground. And then he began to circle round and round to make sure that his friend was okay. As Schechter clumsily pulled himself out of the cockpit, Thayer could see a car race down the runway toward the plane. Two men helped Ken into the vehicle and they sped off toward one of the buildings near the end of the runway. Howie Thayer's job was done and he headed back to the Valley Forge and landed about 20 minutes later. As soon as he climbed out of his cockpit, Thayer was puzzled to have a number of senior pilots and officers come right out to meet him. He quickly learned that nearly everyone aboard the carrier had been listening nervously to the voice transmissions between the two pilots as the whole rescue unfolded. In addition, a transcription machine had recorded everything and that provided for a permanent record of exactly what the two had said. 
As for Ken Schechter, he was immediately transported by helicopter from Jersey Bounce to Geronimo. Doctors there removed some of the larger pieces of shrapnel, but they quickly determined that he was in need of a skilled eye surgeon, something they didn't have, and they had him flown to the Naval Hospital Ship Constellation, which was anchored in the Pusan Harbor in South Korea at the time. From there, it was on to hospitals in Japan, Oakland, and San Diego. In all, he would spend six months in various military hospitals. While he did recover vision in his left eye, he never regained sight in his right, and that meant a permanent end to his military career as a pilot. Two years later, their story became the basis for the Hollywood movie Men of the Fighting Lady. Thayer was portrayed by Van Johnson, and Dewey Martin played the part of Schechter. As one would expect, the film took great license with the story, and that included Schechter's plane landing back on the carrier and exploding in a giant flaming wreck. Interestingly, the plane that Schechter had crash-landed had its propeller replaced, it was flown back to the Valley Forge for repairs, and then it was placed right back in service. Howie Thay would once again perform a similar rescue on June 27th of 1953. This time a plane piloted by Lieutenant John Jane Chambers was hit, not only wounding him in his arms and legs, but damaging his radio and flight instruments. He couldn't communicate. So Thayer had to use hand signals to guide Chambers to a safe landing on an airstrip some 40 miles or 65 kilometers away. Sadly, in January of 1961, while on a night mission, Thayer was guiding a fellow pilot whose plane had experienced an electrical system failure, and while on landing approach, both pilots crashed into the Mediterranean Sea. Their remains were never to be recovered. For all his heroic actions, Howard Thayer was posthumously awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross in 2009. On June 28, 1995, Ken Schechter was also awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Howie Thayer's three adult children were present as he received the award aboard the aircraft carrier Constellation in San Diego. During his acceptance speech, Ken stated to them, quote, I hope you will see this ceremony as your ceremony, because that's certainly the way I feel about it. Kenneth Allen Schechter was born in Harlem, New York on January 31, 1930, the son of European immigrants. After graduating from Stanford and the Harvard Business School, he spent most of his career as an insurance agent. He died of complications due to prostate cancer on December 11, 2013, at the age of 83. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. You remember how the family still talks about Uncle George and Aunt Sue eloping to Niagara Falls? Or when Dad and Mother went to Atlantic City? Well, there's another way families date history. From the summer, they discovered Dairy Rich chocolate-flavored drink. You see, before they discovered Dairy Rich, Mother used to struggle around trying to find one hot-weather drink on which the family would agree, grown-ups as well as children. And then they tried Dairy Rich, and troubles were over. Because served with meals, or as a between-meal snack, Dairy Ritz just hits the spot. 
Delicious, refreshing, nourishing. So why not make a little family history yourself and try serving Dairy Rich? The family will agree that for a marvelous energy pickup, there's nothing like Dairy Rich chocolate-flavored drink. It's chocolate flavor supreme. That commercial for Dairy Rich is from the May 18, 1946 broadcast of the radio series Stars Over Hollywood. It ran on the CBS network starting on May 31st of 1941 and ended on September 25th of 1954. Throughout its entire run, the half-hour show was aired at 12.30 p.m. every Saturday, which was quite unusual. Dairy Rich, that's D-A-R-I Rich, was made by Chicago-based Bowie's Incorporated. It was a mixture of sucrose or sugar, cocoa, water, vanilla extract, and a bit of agar. The one thing that Dairy Rich lacked was the dairy. There was absolutely no milk in it. Instead, Bowie's would ship Dairy Rich in both a syrup and powdered form to dairies all across the country, and it was up to the local milk bottler to add their own 2% milk. They, in turn, would sell it as Dairy Rich chocolate-flavored drink. You could drink it as a cold refresher or heat it up and drink it warm on a frigid night. So here's a question for you. What was the first network television series to have an episode broadcast in color? We'll help you out a bit here. Well, at least a little bit. This detective series originally started on radio and then had two successful runs on television. First in the mid-1950s and then later in the 1960s. Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In other news, here are three stories that all involve some sort of transportation. Now, most people have some familiarity with how Charles Lindbergh became the first person to fly solo nonstop across the Atlantic in 1927. Yet, few people ever talk about those who were the first to do so across the Pacific. 
That honor goes to Clyde Pangborn and Hugh Herndon. The two took off from Sabashiro Beach in Japan on October 4th of 1931 in their plane that was named the Miss Vidal. Shortly after they took flight, they purposely jettisoned their landing gear, and that was both to gain speed and save on fuel. But it didn't all go quite as planned. You see, the struts failed to separate from the airplane, so Pangborn was forced to climb out on the wings barefoot to remove them. 41 hours and 13 minutes later, the two successfully made a belly landing on a patch of sagebrush in Wenatchee, Washington. Then, surprisingly, 16 months later, the captain of a schooner named the Presho spotted something floating in the water. It was a Firestone-branded tire, and it was identified by its serial number as having been part of the landing gear that had been jettisoned by the Miss Vidal shortly after takeoff. What was most amazing about this find is it had followed nearly the identical path across the Pacific that Pangborn and Herndon had taken. It was found just 200 miles, or 320 kilometers away, from their final landing location. Wow. Our second story for today occurred on November 18th of 1951 in Salt Lake City, Utah. 47-year-old pilot Joe Wardle was flying his Piper Cub when the plane's engine iced up and conked out. He needed to land somewhere. So he searched for a flat area to land, and he spotted a nearby highway that he thought he could use as a runway. Without any engine power, he glided the plane safely down and made what he felt was a nearly perfect landing. But he kept waiting for the plane to roll to a stop, but instead it just kept going and going at a steady speed. It took Joe a minute or two to figure out what was going on, but when he finally peered around the nose of the plane it became obvious. He had landed on the roof of a car driven by Ray Perry of Riverton, Utah. Somehow the landing gear had hooked right onto the trunk of Perry's car. When Perry realized what had happened, he immediately slowed down and stopped his car. Both men got out of their vehicles and were glad to see that neither was injured, and their next move was to simply lift the airplane off the top of the car. Now, the automobile was barely damaged. It had just two nicks on the trunk, but the plane had a broken propeller and its landing gear was cracked. And my guess is that Wardle opted to get that engine fixed. (laughs) And in our last story for today, it was reported on September 6, 1962, that Encino, California resident William Wigan was having a major problem with his home at 3644 Sapphire Drive which he had purchased two years prior. His house was in what would appear to be a great location, on a dead-end street. You know, it should have been quiet with very little traffic, but that was not the case. It seems that when his section of the housing development was built, the construction company built a temporary road that connected his street out to the main road, Sepulveda Boulevard, and that allowed them to get their big trucks in and out easily. When construction was completed, a fence was installed to limit access. Those that lived in the surrounding homes were given a key to the gate so they could cut through to the main road. Everyone else had to go the long way, 
about five miles or eight kilometers out of their way, and of course no one wanted to do that. As a result, the gate was constantly being wrecked by commuters who were seeking the shortest drive to work. It was estimated that between 150 and 200 cars use this road every morning between 7.30 and 8.30 a.m. The problem was that to do so, they needed to drive up Wigan's driveway, narrowly pass between the house and a fence, and then drive right through his backyard. Wigan was forced to put up a fence in the back of his house, and that was to block out the bright headlights from all those cars when they were returning at night. And then his insurance company canceled his policy after too many claims were submitted by the motorists who had hit his house. Luckily, the developers helped to get the policy reinstated. Unfortunately, access to the road was written into the deeds of 39 homeowners, and it would require unanimous approval to get the road removed. You know, good luck with that one. Yet there was some light at the end of the tunnel. The city permit for the access road was set to expire in April of 1963, at which point the road needed to be removed. A quick check with Google Maps shows that the road is long gone. So earlier I had asked you if you knew the first network television series to have an episode broadcast in color. Did you guess it? The answer was Dragnet. This particular episode was titled The Big Little Jesus and it was broadcast on Christmas Eve of 1953. Now the same episode was remade in 1969 when the series was in its second run and this time they called the episode The Christmas Story. Now that original color version was filmed a few weeks earlier in Hollywood and then it was sent to NBC TV in New York City for broadcast there because they were the only station that had a projector capable of transmitting color film. The show was broadcast at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and sent over AT&T's 107-station microwave relay network to the other television stations around the country. Of course, hardly anyone owned a color television set at the time, and as a result, most people saw the show in black and white. The color TVs were basically owned by the television stations themselves, so they set up viewing parties to which the press was invited. Reviews were actually kind of mixed. Some claimed that the colors were muted and distorted, while others loved it. The main problem was the high cost of a color television set at the time. Get this, a 14-inch or 36-centimeter model was estimated to sell for between $700 and $1,500. Adjusted for inflation, that would be between $6,600 and $14,200 today for a 14-inch set. As you probably noticed, color television, it just never caught on. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I'd just like to mention again that I'm in the process of writing a new book, and it'll be a collection of unusual, long-forgotten stories, just like the ones you hear monthly on this podcast. My plan is to write the bulk of the book this summer, which is just around the corner, so I better get going. If you'd like to receive occasional updates as to when the book will be available, you can just go to my website, that's uselessinformation.org, and click on the image of the book on the left. 
That'll take you to a Google form where you can enter your contact information. Be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at uselessinfocast, and that'll allow you to be among the first to know when a new episode's released. Again, the handle is at uselessinfocast. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. All you have to do is a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there, and it should pop up. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. So be sure to go to recordedhistory.net to learn all about the quality history podcast that the network has to offer. Anyway, thanks again for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.